I know I'm going to look back on this intro and say to myself, I did not hype this up enough. This was by far my favorite interview, so I'll do my best. I'm extremely grateful and proud to have this person on Gripped. She is a social entrepreneur who is making a huge dent in the world for all the right reasons. She's using emerging technologies like IoT and blockchain and sensors to solve real-world challenges all across the world. And if you're saying to yourself, I have no idea what that means, it's okay, because neither do I. But we had uh, an amazing time together. There was so much wisdom, so much insight. We talked about self-awareness and how to ask yourself really tough questions to get to the root of your motivations and help you decide what you're going to do with your life. We talked a lot about mental health, especially taking care of it as a high performer. And we talked about the action, the one action that you can take today that can start having social good and changing the world. Please take the time to listen to this all the way through. Luch, I'm extremely grateful for your friendship. Please keep doing what you're doing. You're making it a real difference. And I aspire to the work ethic and the generosity and the love that you bring to the world. This is Gripped. Luch, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very excited. One of the challenges. Oh, yeah, out in in Honduras. Yeah. My first international guest. (laughs) I think one of the the challenges about interviewing someone that's so accomplished is there's so many places that I can start with this. And so I've decided to keep it simple and I've decided to just ask you about where we met. And over the last couple of years, you've been part of many different fellowships, including the one that I'm part of, which is Venture for Canada. But there was other fellowships as well uh, with RBC. And then uh, I heard Money 20 Under 20 Rise Up. And so what I'm wondering is how did you end up participating in all these different fellowships? And is there one or two moments or memories over the last couple of years that you can share with the audience about the benefits you've received from, from doing those? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've been mostly about, uh, about function for, for a while. Like I look for um, communities that I think will really benefit from either, you know, they will benefit from me participating and I will greatly benefit from uh, participating in them. Um, Venture for Canada was really this opportunity I saw, you know, I was immersed in the tech space already. I was working for a company that used artificial intelligence for predictive price modeling for airfare. And uh, I loved being in it, but I realized, you know, in being there that I had so much to learn and this felt like an opportunity to just deep dive into it and learn it quickly. And that adaptability, I think, is really useful. So you know, I, I went looking for it and I, it was recommended to me by a friend. And once I figured out what it was, I was really keen on being a part of it, although I wasn't Canadian. So I, for me, it was a question of whether they would take me and then they did. And that's how you and I met mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the morning workout crew. Um, yes. It was a wonderful experience. I, I've loved every bit of it. The most valuable thing has always been the people that I've met through it. I think, you know, I can think of first phone calls at very various instances over the past two years. And 
a lot of them ended up going to the Venture for Canada fellows. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, and then, you know, the other ones just became, I became addicted to being surrounded by people that legitimately understood my core. You know, they were goal oriented, purpose driven. They were kind and, and in their pursuit of these goals and these ambitions. And they were high achievers and intelligent. And so I wanted to surround myself even more with them, especially with women, uh, because it was so refreshing to find and recognize those traits in other women. And so Rise Up, Money 2020 Rise Up was that exactly. It was women in, in the finance industry, which is traditionally so male dominant. And they were saying, here's a group of 30 women that are up and coming in this industry. And, and we wanna give them the space to get to know each other, to get to learn from each other, support each other, and then live through the Money 2020 conference as you know, one, uh, one cohesive and supportive group. And I can think about one specific memory. Um, I applied to Money 2020 thinking there's no way in hell I'm gonna get this. First of all, I'm not a, women, I'm not a woman in FinTech. Um, mm -hmm. I use financial technologies. I facilitate access to other financial services and technologies, but I don't consider myself a woman in FinTech. So the first thing off the bat was how to frame my application so that it would make sense for the context. Um, and I applied, hit the send button and thought, you know, I can forget about this. Mm -hmm. And somehow I ended up getting in and we are all gathered, you know, all 30 or 35 of us are gathered in this room and we're introducing ourselves to each other. And I think I said something like, I'm not sure how I ended up here <laughs> and how I got it. But here I am. And then somebody else goes, what are you talking about? I read your biography. And she said, and when I did, I asked myself, how did I end up here? <laughs> and so, we're going around in circles and all 30 of us are flabbergasted that each of us got in because of how much we respected everyone else in the group. And to me, that was such a moment of saying like, this is a barrier for women that we don't think that we can enter these kinds of spaces or that we deserve a place in these kinds of communities. And I think, you know, once we all realized that that's what we had each thought in our own time, um, that that was a statement in, of, in and of itself. And so, you know, that's been a change maker in terms of saying, you know, when a, an opportunity presents itself, yeah, I absolutely totally deserve this. And I'm going to go ahead and take it for all that it is and make sure that whoever doesn't have it, I'm doing it for them and for their missed opportunity and for myself and for having this opportunity and for being grateful for it. So I think that's been a, a really big attitude change that I'm very uh, grateful for. Yeah, that grab the bull by the horns attitude is totally necessary. I think the other thing that I see that's clear among that group of individuals is the amount of humility in the yeah. room and yeah. and so when i when i see you and i and i see that humility it, it you know fires me up because i actually see you as such an anomaly uh such an outlier and one of one of my concerns going into this interview is i wanted to make it relatable to people and so what i would what i would love is if you could just share briefly about who you are um, for those that don't know you, I know a lot of mutual friends will end up listening to this this episode. But for those that that don't know you already, can you tell us a little bit about your roots, maybe about your parents growing up at Honduras, what that was like, and then how that impacts you today? I'm like every other person you've ever met, by the way. But um, <laughs> I think I'm driven by the same things, and I don't know. I, I did grow up in a very unique, um, not a very unique, because like 9 million of us grew up here, but <laughs> I did grow up in, in Honduras. And that's different, I guess, to the people that would traditionally be listening to this podcast. Um, but very proudly, I grew up in Honduras. And unfortunately, this country is like 
full of issues, a lot of poverty, about 62% of the population lives under $2 a day, which is a very oh. extreme number. Highest corruption levels in the world amongst, and um, yeah, it's a really difficult thing. I went to school with the top 0.5%. My mom was a school teacher there, so we um, were privileged enough to benefit from that. And, you know, growing up with that juxtaposition of like being surrounded by pervasive poverty, but then like living my daily life immersed in like luxury living was very interesting. And I keen observer that I, I am, I would always sort of notice these kinds of differences. But, you know, my parents, they're both, um, my mom is a, well, is a school teacher, and my, she's retired now. And my father worked mostly in the private, in the public sector for most of his life. So he worked in, you know, healthcare, and he worked a lot. Now he works in social security. And, you know, they taught me to be really compassionate and really generous. It was very important for them that I'd be both of those things, that I'd be really kind and empathetic. And so the way that you teach that is really focused around charitable giving. So they would always uh, take us to different donation centers and we, you know, my siblings and I would, would donate a lot. And then in 1998, I was eight and a hurricane struck Honduras and it set our economy back 150 years. Whoa. It led you know, to countless, countless loss of, of goods, of homes, of lives, of livelihoods, and it was devastating, really. My family was lucky enough to not be affected by it so much, um, but in that, my parents were really active in the community and trying to get clean water and clothing um, and food to different communities, and so I remember, I have like flashes of very specific memories around distributing that, and then um, in, in uh, seventh, eighth grade, I was about 13, we got a science project. And the science project was, you know, take a concept that you've learned in school and apply it to reality. And for us, it was like, okay, we'll pick water. Let's go see how water gets purified. So we went to this purifying plant. Don't ask me anything about it because I don't remember anything about the purification yeah. process. But on the way down, I, there was this neighborhood. And, you know, we were like, let's add a human element to our project and ask the neighbors what it's like to live next to this purifying plant. And, you know, is it noisy? Is it annoying to hear trucks coming in and out? Like, what's the deal? First question we asked, I don't remember the question, but the answer I remember. And it was, you know, this community didn't have access to clean water. They didn't have running water. They collected it from a river 90 minutes away and they, you know, would collect it from the rain and every two weeks, whatever the city didn't use, this purifying plant would donate to this community. So actually it was a benefit to live there because it meant that every two weeks you could have access to clean water. And that was the first time where it wasn't about, I have, it's, it feels really good to give and that generosity. It was really about asking myself, why the hell do I have and why the hell don't they? What's the difference maker? And what is it that creates a system that allows for this kind of inequality of access and this kind of injustice to take place? And that was, if you were to ask me to look back on like a defining moment or what shaped me or what, um, like what's led to who I am today, I think it's that moment. It was being confronted with injustice and finding it just unpalatable. Um, and then building a life around fighting it at every in every instance that it manifests in front of me. I don't know. Is that relatable? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I can see how that defining moment has clearly come with you for the rest of your life because you are one of the most generous people I know. I know I wrote a blog about you in 2017 about <laughs> being being a giver, and, and that's why I was so happy that you said yes to doing the podcast. I want to talk a lot about 
social good today. I want to talk a lot about making an impact. I do want to park it briefly, though, to talk about mental health, because that's really the focus and the theme of this show. And I, I feel like it's a perfect segue, because when you said to yourself, you asked yourself the question, why do I have and why don't they have? That's very, that's very intelligent questions, especially for your age. It's very thoughtful. And so the way that I see you is you seem to be extremely self-aware. And I find that with people that do a really good job of taking care of their mental health, they tend to be very self-aware. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey with mental health and how self-awareness has actually helped you or maybe where you've struggled through that, that process. Yeah, I mean, I think the key to understanding self-awareness is really understanding that the first answer is never the, the correct answer. It's never the most accurate, the most complete. You never want to take the first answer at face value, right? The okay. easy question to ask has been like, you know, how can we get water to this community? But that would have been a surface level answer that doesn't really address the issue. So for self-awareness, it's really like, there's going to be a question that's going to make you uncomfortable. And then asking one step beyond that, that's what's going to get you to the degree of uh, self-awareness that, that you're really looking for, right? It's um, understanding to never take a question at its face value, but try to answer it one step beyond to the point where it makes you uncomfortable. Okay. And in that moment, that's what it was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a sympathy play. It was understanding like, why is this happening? And what is it that can, that makes this happen time after time after time that it's so cyclical and so ingrained in our system. And, and then you try and look at that and apply that to yourself. So um, I think self-awareness has been a, a really big contributor to my mental health because it, the first question is, am I stressed? And you know, the answer can be yes, which generally I am. Um, but if you keep it there, then it's, it's not enough. That, that won't allow you to really understand anything about yourself. You have to understand every intricacy of what stress looks like for you and why it manifests. Mm. Especially if you're the kind of person that is constantly under stress because you either have a stressful job or there's a stress at home or a financial stress. It's really understanding, you know, how to break that down into pieces that you can tackle and also into pieces that you can understand how to, how to move on from. Um, so, you know, I guess mind mapping, I talk about a lot and probably all our mutual friends are going to roll their eyes when I say it again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say it a lot, uh, but it really, that's what it is. It means, you know, you take different aspects of your life and you break them down to the degree where you just understand everything there is about yourself and you change constantly, right? So there's a need for you to constantly reevaluate yourself. So if you're thinking about um, setting a goal, um, and this is you know, largely related to starting a business or to whatever kind of goal it is, but in my case, it was about starting this business. I didn't know that I wanted to, I mean, I knew I wanted to solve a problem, but I didn't know it was gonna require starting a business. But, you know, or being healthy, physically healthy. I really wanted to be physically healthy too. and Traditionally, someone will say, I want to be physically healthy or I want to lose 10 pounds. So that's what their goal is. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't explain why you want to have that goal in the first place. It doesn't explain what it is about being healthy or losing weight that is going to satisfy you. So generally, what the outcome of that is going to be is that you're going to say, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week this year. And, you know, sure, you'll go to the, the gym five times a week for the first two weeks and then you'll quit. And the reason for that is because you never understood what the underlying motivator was. You know, was it because you wanted to feel fit and strong and healthy? In my case, it wasn't really about physical body image. It was really that I wanted to feel strong and empowered. And so going to the gym 
five times a week and running on a treadmill wasn't going to give me that kind of satisfaction. What was going to give it to me was to take a martial arts class, which is exactly what I did because I understood the underlying motivator of why it is that I wanted to be, you know, working out. And so I think that when it comes to mental health, it's really being brave enough to ask yourself the question that makes you uncomfortable, ask another question that makes you even more uncomfortable, and then be okay with the answers that are going to come from that. Because at the end of the day, the make or break differentiator is your ability to take that information and then turn it into a tangible behavior. Um, be it building a habit, be it, you know, an attitude change, be it a question you have to ask yourself every day to make sure that you react to it every day, whatever the outcome is going to be, it's going to be based on speaking true to what's really underneath the surface. And that's really what mental health is about. It's not, you know, a, a series of habits that you do every day. It's really the underlying questions that are beneath that, that are saying, I have enough awareness to know I need this kind of help to say that I need this kind of support, to know that I need this kind of attitude or behavioral change or whatever. And knowing that, that's the, the real uh, impactful part of, self, of mental health and of self-awareness. What I love about that example is I totally knew that you were, you were into martial arts, but I didn't see that that's where you were going with it. Um, yeah. It's Krog Maga, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I would, I would not want to mess with you. So I'm, I'm glad that we can use those questions to find out what would actually be the best fit and what would actually serve us the most. And then you can take action on that. And I'm, I'm sure for you, that was very fulfilling long-term. Of course, feeling strong is, you know, really powerful to me. And, and so that's what I wanted, but a treadmill wasn't going to do that. So, yeah. you know, as soon as I, I was really consistent with Krav Maga, actually, now that I'm in Honduras, I've been going to boxing because Krav Maga is harder to find. Um, and I was, uh, I'm going to tell you a, a hilarious story from this week. Um, but I was practicing, I was getting ready, putting on my gloves, and I was getting ready to do my punching bags. And this person that I had been around was, you know, looking at me, and he goes, can I tell you something? You are really pretty, but I would not want to be married to you. <laughs> he goes, he said, imagine if I made you mad. I can't believe how strong you punch, and I'd rather take my own teeth out than let one of your punches take them from <laughs> me. And I laughed and laughed and laughed, and I thought, that's good because that's, I, I'm so focused on the music and on doing the exercise that I haven't even realized that actually I'm getting much stronger. Um, and what I walk out with from every class is that sense of, you know, really peaceful, focused strength. And that I think is incredibly powerful, but I wouldn't have known that unless I had really broken down my whys and what my motivation and what the drivers for that motivation was. What was it about myself that I didn't like? It was that I felt physically weak. I want to talk about mind maps, but one thing before that is yeah. how long have you been doing martial arts in in a consistent basis now? Um, about three years. Okay. Two the reason I was the reason I was curious is because we do see that it's part of our culture. It's almost a, a running joke at this point that people are gonna get their gym membership in January and then they're not gonna show up in February. And it's yeah. it's beautiful to see when you ask yourself a couple questions that are uncomfortable underlying your motivations, how it actually triggers commitment and consistency and long-term discipline because it's an alignment of what you really need. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, you're right. And, and I used to be one of those. I used to be a, you know, gym consistently for a couple of weeks and then, you know, three months without going. And then again and again, and these like really, you know, useless cycles because ultimately that's not healthy, right? Um, 
and then now it's such a, a big difference and I love going and I wake up every morning and I'm excited. I'm there at seven and like nice. the gym opens at seven. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah. sure as people were listening, we skimmed through it. I know you mentioned our mutual friends know a lot about you and mind mapping, but can we spend a couple minutes just briefly on what is that? Why did you implement that in your life? What kind of benefits have you received from that? Maybe some people can actually try to implement that this week. Yeah, sure. I, um, I love mind mapping as many people know. Um, and for me, it really is almost like a thought process of product development. When you want to develop a product, you really want to understand everything there is to know about the need of that market, right? You're going to try to find that fit and, and try to address a particular need that makes you better than every other product out there. Yes. And, you know, yes. I was doing this for a company in 2016, 2015, um, and it just the, the repetitive daily behavior of doing that and trying so hard to break down something to the degree that you could understand every layer of it you know, I was struggling through, you know, some, some, uh, some of my own issues. And I thought, Hey, I, I can do this to a product. Why can't I do this to myself? And that's what mind mapping became for me. It became a, a, a legitimate, tangible way to ask myself hard questions. And so the way that I like to do it and the way that I've taught some of the, our mutual friends to do it is, you know, I draw a stick figure of myself in the middle of a blank page. And then I, create categories that I know are important to me. I know family uh, values, work, curiosity, and health are really important areas of my life. Um, friendships, and, and um, so I build these relationships if I'm in one. And what we do is that, you know, you take 20 minutes in different frames of life. Sometimes I do it at night, sometimes I do it in the morning, with alcohol, with tea, doesn't really matter. Um, but you take 20 minutes and you just let your entire self go onto this page. If the word is repeated, it doesn't matter to me. If it's misspelled, if it's in the wrong place, it doesn't actually matter. But 20 minutes of just putting out every word that comes to your mind during those 20 minutes and putting it on that page, um, and then allowing your subconscious to sort of surface and take control and, uh, and let it out. And I do that about maybe six times. And then I take all of the maps together and I circle what I find is common trends um, because you're taking stock of changes in your life, right? Because we like to think that we know ourselves because we are ourselves. But the reality is that very often we process things in ways that our subconscious sort of protects from us or that we don't want to think about right now or that we sort of want to say that we've dealt with but haven't really. And so by sort of doing this every couple months, you take stock of what it is that you're your brain and yourself has not finished processing and it allows you to discover what's really picking at you what your real underlying stressors are what your dissatisfaction looks like and where it's coming from and how to sort of adapt what you're doing in life to make sure that sometimes you need to be focused on like the outcome of your goal if you're a high performer or you're working a job that has you know really tangible results driven culture, then maybe that's what you need to be focused on right now. But then eventually something happens in your life and you need to take another aspect of your job that it is that you love and channel your love into that for a sec so that you take this break that your brain needs. Um, and so in my case, a lot of it has revolved around um, autonomy, I think is a big one for me. Uh, generosity was a big one for me in, 2000, in the first 2015. I was really intentional because I kept seeing generosity pop up and I thought, well, I, I consider myself a generous person, sure. 
I have a charity. Um, and that wasn't enough for me. It, it was such an important value for me that the way that I was manifesting it, it wasn't enough. The questions I needed to ask myself that year were, how am I being generous to my friends and to my coworkers and to myself, which I often let go of. And, and that changed the way that I embody generosity and it became such a, a fundamental value and uh, it speaks truly to my core because it, it was this underlying thing that I hadn't properly addressed. And there've been other years where it's been more about discipline and about uh, autonomy. And then, you know, now I feel really fulfilled. I definitely go through highs and lows and the lows are really low and the highs are really high and instantaneous sometimes. But ultimately I feel extremely fulfilled and grateful of my place in life, but it's taken a ton of work and it's been intentional work and it's been uncomfortable work because it's confrontational with oneself. Right. And that's the power of a mind map. It's that because you're allowing your subconscious to take over, there's no filter to yourself. And sure, what you find might be a little uncomfortable, but the reality is that it's going to be a, a, a viable and truly sustainable change that you make because it's speaking to something that even you don't want to accept about yourself. I'm going to try this on. I'm going to put some mind maps together. There's some work in my unconscious I think I need to process. And I want to encourage people that are listening to try that on or reach out to Luch to, to get some more details on how she does this if, if you want to. Uh, one question that came up for me is, and then we're going to shift gears and talk about emerge and talk about how that generosity is manifesting itself in your, in your day to day today. The question is, is if there was one hard question that you ask yourself, that's probably made the biggest impact in your life, what would that question be? Um, I think um, it was the, the question I asked. Um, it's simple enough. It's more like what's holding you back and breaking that, question down in a in a, its own map uh, the answer was ultimately that it was myself at that point in time i was self-sabotaging uh, i was too afraid to make a decision so i let it drag uh, i was you know looking for excuses um i was holding myself back and i fall into these cycles every once in a while because it's you know i live a really spontaneous super risky life and very often what that does is that internally I sort of close up right and so I become a little bit more afraid and I have to be much more intentional about remembering that that's not me I'm actually brave okay. um, and so I think the most impactful question led to the most difficult answer to hear which is that um, of all things in the world the one that you've had least success in controlling and the one that you sort of have been allowing to take over in a negative way has been your own self and fueling a lot of the sources of my self of my negative self-confidence right because i do believe that our ego is broken down into these layers where fundamentally a lot of people most people including myself have a base layer of insecurity um, and a base layer of security and my security is completely wrapped around my intellect and my my purpose-driven work and everything else for me falls in the category of insecurity and allowing that insecurity to flourish was self-sabotaging and it was the root of feeling stuck and so I think the most impactful question has been um, that, that, you know, what is holding you back and realizing that the answer was you, you're holding yourself back. Um, and then even harder was to figure out how to pull yourself out of it, right? How to realize that, that and at the end of the day, you're the only thing in life that you can actually control. And so how do you take back um, this self-sabotage that you seem to justify or explain away or 
figure out how to project blame onto other things or circumstances or, you know, call it like, oh, it's the universe making this happen when really it was you. Um, so that's been the most impactful. And I think it, to take that sense of accountability back and to realize how um, influential you are in the outcome of your life on the daily, I think that's really powerful. And it's, it's been, um, it's been great to sort of know that I'm okay putting blame on myself, but I'm also okay in knowing that I have the power to affect change in that and turn it into a positive as well. So um, I feel really happy and, and uh, fulfilled right now, uh, but mostly because I'm iterative and I'm not afraid of my own shortcomings. I, I actually welcome them because it allows me another chance to get to know another layer of myself. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's... Uh, I'm a part of a men's team where I deliver a seminar series for men. And one of the exercises we did a few weeks ago was try to help men understand what their default context is, meaning the way that they frame their life, whatever per perspective they're coming from. And through that exercise, I actually found for myself that my default context in my day-to-day -day life is I'm not good enough. And so I can see how that shows up for me as self-sabotage. And I feel like we would be doing everyone listening a disservice if I didn't ask you, what's a strategy that you actually use to overcome that? It sounds like framing it that uh, giving yourself some credit was part of that. Is there anything else that you do that helps you to, to, to manage that? Because I'm, I'm certain there's people listening to the show right now that are feeling the same way, that are getting in their own way. They've got barriers in their life and it's probably themselves. Yeah, I think um, a big piece is understanding your own sources of security and insecurity. So I know that my security comes from what I do professionally, um, that I'm able to learn quickly. All of these things give me, they fuel the most foundational core of security that I have mm -hmm. because I literally have zero doubt in my capability in this realm. And so sometimes when I feel like it's the self-doubt that's taking over, where I know that it's fueled by this foundational sense of insecurity, it helps to sort of remember what it is that I'm great at and focus on that for a bit. Because I know that it's going to bring me back and it's going to show me um, that I'm better than I'm giving myself credit for in this moment in time. Um, and so just truly, again, it's asking these really hard questions of yourself. It's saying, what is the primary source of your confidence? And what is the primary source of your self-doubt? And whenever something is happening where you feel like you've spent a few days in this, in this realm of uncertainty or doubt or fear or whatever, it's figuring out, has, is this feeding you know, the source of my insecurity? And if it is, then where does the source of my security come from? And how am I going to you know, take a few steps to sort of feed that. So I focus a lot on my professional work. I take on a new project on the side or um, I take on a new challenge. I just accepted becoming a member of a board of directors for uh, an organization that's gonna teach children about cryptocurrency and mining. And, um, and so I think for us, for me, it's really important to feed that, to be able to pull myself out of all sorts of self-doubt. And, you know, a lot of people will say like, yeah, you have to work through your insecurity, but I, I'm not actually one of those kinds of people. I think in my world, I'm aware that I'm, I'm going to be always bad at some things um, and that they're going to be a source of self-doubt for me. And so by knowing that and by being accepting of that, I find it much more empowering to remember what I'm great at and to also know that it's okay that my performance won't be 100% in this realm because it's just not going to happen. No one can make that happen. Um, and so realizing where my own vulnerability and my own fragility and my own ability to fail lie and being okay with being all of that and being a holistic person 
that succeeds and that fails and that makes tons of mistakes, but also does a lot of things well. Um, I think being accepting of my whole personhood has been uh, a really powerful driver of uh, success because it's allowed me to fail, but not fail to the degree where I would quit or fail to the degree where I would um, just let something go but to rethink it and adapt it and find a new outlook on it that will allow me to continue to succeed. It's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be frail and it's okay to break down. I've called Emily from you know, a hotel floor in tears and I've also called her like jumping up and down with success. So I think um, accept, being accepting of your entire personhood is a really powerful way to stay healthy in, in your mind. Okay, and shout out to Ms. Bolton who's there for phone calls <laughs> when you need it. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, I'm going to need some time to unpack that for myself personally and how I can apply it. Uh, in the meantime, I want to shift gears, talk about Emerge. And I'm going to read something for the audience because in 2017, we were sitting down in a big room filled with 50 strangers and you were sitting in front of the room giving a presentation about self-awareness. And you read something that I thought was brilliant and I can see how over the course of the last few years and throughout your entire life and the more that I get to know you, that you are living these words. It's not just words on paper. You're taking action and manifesting it in your life. So I'm going to read it for everyone. My purpose lies in living a life that creates social good, both personally and professionally. I will live a life that embodies generosity, kindness, strength, and compassion. I prioritize balance and well-being. I will make time to discover the world and I will seize every opportunity to learn and I'll be present for those I love and who love me. Very thoughtful. It was just beautiful to see that someone in their 20s, I don't know exactly when you wrote this, but is already thinking about their life in this way. I believe in intentionality. I believe that that's going to make the difference between a life you look back on and are very proud of or a life that you look back on and say, why did I make all those decisions? Uh, so where I want to go with this is, can you tell me a little bit about how this purpose statement translated into the work that you're doing today, how you got into Emerge and what Emerge is and, and the type of difference you're making in the world? Yeah, well, you know, I'm purpose driven. I, I think I'm really open about that. And that moment in, you know, in grade eight, it was to me really just like, I didn't even feel it in that moment, but it was really the defining moment of my life where I just said, there is nothing that is acceptable about injustice. Mm. And every action since then has been about fighting it in some way, shape, or form, be it gender injustice, be it poverty and inequality, economic inequality. Um, it doesn't actually matter how it manifests to me. It's just injustice is really uncomfortable for me. Um, okay. Situations of injustice are really uncomfortable for me. And so um, I feel the need and the like urge to do something about it at whatever, like to my own personal cost at times. Mm. And so... I was thinking about that um, and over time what it had cost me. And sometimes it had cost me friendships or it had cost me my relationship with a family member or something like that. And so I created the statement, I think, to remind myself that, um, that yes, it's really important to be fueled by this sense of, of urgent need to do something about something I find fundamentally unacceptable. Um, but also that in my privilege in living the life that I do, um, it's a life that so many other people would kill for, that they would love to have this opportunity to travel the world and to learn and to participate in these, you know, fellowships or, or networks that I do or to speak at the conferences I attend or, you know, whatever it is, but, um, but they can't. And so it's my responsibility to not just 
continue the work that I'm doing that I so firmly believe in and it's necessary for my existence to even be mm. plausible, but also to take these moments in life and make sure that I'm living it to its fullest extent. And what does that look like? It means being surrounded by the people love. And it means, um, you know, being here. Right now I'm in Honduras. I canceled a lot of my trips to be here for my family during a difficult time. Um, I think it's really important to absorb as much as I can. So I take Saturdays and I sort of explore a little bit, whether it's a museum or, you know, something I know nothing about, which can always be uncomfortable for people <laughs> to face reality that they don't yeah. know everything about everything. Unconscious incompetence. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, teach me about something I have no clue about or take me somewhere I've never been or, you know, um, just take a moment and walk a hundred blocks listening to some podcast or some playlist that's really enjoyable to you and take seconds of life to really find the beauty in it as much as you find the meaning in it. And so that statement was really about being able to bring all of this together. And that is exactly how my company came to be. It was, you know, all of these life experiences. It was the injustices I've seen over and over again. Um, it was my experience working in the public sector because I do have a background in, uh, I worked for diplomatic mission before and a lot of my work centered around undocumented immigration it centered around food trade you know i went to university to study um economic development and focused specifically on realms of scarcity and conflict and how to create economic growth from these kinds of you know basically places where people wouldn't assume that this could be, even be possible um and then working in artificial intelligence and taking all of these experiences together and piecing them into something with meaning and that's how Emerge was born. It was really a manifestation of saying like, technology matters, humanity, the humanity in technology matters and bringing this together is what's going to enable us to solve problems in a way that is you know, future-proof and in a way that is innovative, uncomfortably innovative. Because very often, you know, we're looking at applying to something, some grant or some accelerator program or something, and we don't tick the boxes because we're not constrained by them anymore. Because for us, it's really been about designing a company that um, that takes the form that it needs to take in order to solve the problem in the most humane and transparent and efficient way possible. And I'm really proud of it, but it really is a reflection of, you know, the values and the and the willingness to be open-minded and to um, to be so purpose-driven, but still appreciative of every single piece that makes that even plausible. And um, that's kind of the art philosophy, I guess, if we think about it like that, or how it, its origin story came to be. It was a manifestation of all of my life experiences. And then slowly it's been transforming into, you know, the more team members we bring in, people come in and out, partners come in and out, and they add a piece to it. And it's all really cool and really adaptable and doesn't look like anything because it, it can be anything. Yeah. Uh, I've got, anything. Yeah. It's no, like it's a super high over blue sky, you know, no, philosophical it, looking at it. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Cause now I'm going to get very granular with you. So I have two cool. questions left and then I'll let you wrap it up. The, the first question is about emerge. And for those that don't still don't know what it is, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're using emerging technologies like IOT sensors, blockchain to solve these real world challenges we're experiencing. So yeah. can you give us, you tell us a story about this in action. An example of a, yeah. a partner or a client that you worked with where people are listening right now, they may know a manufacturing company or somebody that may need a solution like this where they'd be able to benefit. So we do a lot of work in the food transparency section and we do a lot of work in the identity realm. Um, and both of these are really important issues. Uh, we are a solutions development studio really. So we look at a problem and then we solve it in the most humanely way possible. 
Um, and so, you know, the company started with a, a first issue, which was um, identity. We were looking at re refugees and we were looking at the human trafficking that um, sort of comes as a reaction from not being able to properly identify people, from not being able to properly resettle them. Uh, at the moment, there are you know, about 68.5 million people displaced from conflict. That's like Syria, Myanmar, Venezuela, all, you know, certain parts of Africa. And that's not factoring in homelessness. It's not factoring in other forms of displacement where the people haven't crossed an international border. So the number's really past 1 billion. We're looking at this population of 68.5 million. And of them, 102,800 had been resettled in an entire year. Like collectively, our world resettled less than 0.1% of, or less than 0.2% of uh, people that are displaced. And that was also unpalatable to us. And so in order to better understand how displacement sort of looks like in different contexts, because a person that is displaced in Syria is not the same as a person that is displaced in Myanmar or in Venezuela, the circumstances are all different, which meant that our solution needed to be flexible enough to account for this. So one of the first forms of displacement that we wanted to look at was, you know, heavily covered in the news. It was the migrant caravan, economic migra migration happening as a response to pervasive poverty and violence in Central America. So what we did was we went to Mexico <laughs> and I was in Mexico with the migrant caravan. And, you know, this was a really difficult trip for me because about 80, 85% of people in the caravan were from my home country. They were Honduran. So the sense of responsibility and saying, this is my home country that's devolved to the degree where people are willing to walk 3,000 miles um, with like less than $8 in their pocket to, you know, a 0.1% chance at a better life, that's devastating to me. Um, we were there to observe how people were being given identity documents, how they were applying for asylum, how the governments were treating them. We were there to really look at how we could solve this massive problem. Um, and while there, we were interviewing, you know, a lot of people. We were day in, day out spending time at the processing center. We were spending time with, at the shelters, at all of these different places. And then we'd get back to the hotel and the news would be totally different than what we were seeing. You know, they were saying that the Mexican government was putting them in trucks and then driving them to the American border to make them the U.S.'s problem. We had not seen that. They were saying they were putting numbers on children's arms. We had not seen that. And so we were really confused by it and kind of offended too. Um, because a lot of it was based on lies. And then uh, I was there with David, who uh, runs Penta, which is one of our biggest partners. And um, he and I were in the shelter, and we ran into a journalist. And he was a European journalist, and he was there to, with a camera and getting ready to find a story. And he said, you know, we asked him, they're like, oh, what, you know, you're covering the, the shelter. You should definitely check out their new medical ward. And you should, you know, we were giving him because we had just done the entire tour ourselves. Yeah. And he said... Yeah no, I'm looking for a story on where the city hasn't done enough. And we were like, what do you mean you're looking for a story? You're here to cover this and the story is this and all of the different layers of it because the city has been doing a lot. It's been feeding them twice a day and it's just given them a new medical ward, which we just told you to go look at. But he was looking for a very specific story to tell and that was the story he was going to tell the millions of Europeans that access this network because it is a very big network. And the, that along with this entire conversation around fake news and around alternative facts and around, you know, like media outlets framing opinions, 
all of it was just so frustrating. So, uh, you know, give us a few weeks and we had designed a solution that preserves a chain of custody for source material. So any person right now can take their device and connect to our platform, tell their story, and we'll protect the integrity of that testimony. We track images by pixel, so that means that a picture can't be manipulated. Well, no. Uh, we track video by pixel. And so we created this way to protect the chain of custody. And now what we're trying to do is get journalists to buy in and say, you know what, I'm going to start referencing my source material and protecting it to make sure that people can say, you know, when they click on my news story, they can click on my source and they can see where it came from. They can see that it's vetted, that it's a verified source. You know, we will never know truth, right? Because it's a very subjective thing. People tell their story in the way that they perceived it. And so, for example, when you read a story on the migrant caravan today, it might say, you know, Juan 55 says this. And first of all, you're asking yourself, you know, who's Juan and how do I know he was part of the migrant caravan? And how do I know that this is what he said in the way that he intended to say it? And whether his story is true or not, we don't know that. There's not enough, there's not a way for us to know that. But there is a way for us to trust that the news outlet actually used someone that was a part of a migrant caravan and actually represented what he said in the way that he said it. And so I think that that's a really powerful thing. So that's an example of you know us being really angry at something or, or being frustrated by an issue and then designing something and making something happen as a response to it. So we do that. We also do it for companies um, or organizations inbound. Uh, so whether it's to encrypt witness information for a war crime investigation, whether it's to design a solution that will fractionalize ownership of public resources like a rainforest to make sure it's protected and that the government can't just, you know, graze it. Um, so that, that's kind of what we focus on. We look at innovative, humane solutions to really big, uh, big and complex, messy issues. And I'm really proud of the company. Um, it's shaping up to be really uh, impactful and also uh, special in the way that it, it goes about thinking about every person that's affected by a particular issue or its particular solution. Um, our work in food supply chain, we track apples, we track mangoes, we're tracking coffee, we're tracking all of these things and making sure that they're always kept in optimal condition and that you, know, you as a consumer have the right to know exactly where your food comes from and that it was kept safely at all times. We believe that's a really powerful thing and that needs to happen as you know, the more that we transport food internationally and the fact that we're wasting a third of it that we produce globally, I think that's also unpalatable. So here we are trying to fix it. So now we have about uh, five clients on this side and we're working on getting some more and um, looking at data all day about food and how it's transported and it's really interesting. And I'm learning a lot about IoT sensors and you know RFID manifestations, whether it's a sticker or a card or whatever it is that we wanna put on a product. And um, yeah, you know, always uh, happy to talk about Emerge, but I'm, mostly proud of the way that we've created a culture that's special because it's focused on solving a problem humanely and it's focused on um, making sure that we understand how it affects every single person that it'll touch even tangentially uh, and that form of inclusive innovation and impactful innovation is uh, going to be you know what i work for the rest of my life i'm hoping it's so clear to me, and I'm certain for everyone that's listening, just the, the way you show up, the way you communicate, that you are, you are making a difference, that you are making a dent in this world. I got to ask you, for the people who feel like, wow, 
yeah, Luch is, Luch is really powerful. Like it's, there's no surprise that she's doing something like this. I could never do something like this. Almost the way you described the women in that women network where they didn't think that they were going to be able to get in. There's, there's some people out there that don't have the belief in themselves to start taking action on a project, an opportunity, something that's going to make a difference in this world. What would you say to those people before we wrap this up on, on the difference that they can make and, and how to get started on doing something like that? Oh, I'm so happy you asked this question because honestly, I think a big piece of it has always been the fact that we see problems as so complex that we don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. So it's never that it's a lack of intention. It's always that it's just a, a lack of understanding as to where one can actually have some form of impact. You know, you look at something and say, refugees, yeah, I want to help one, but how the hell do I even start? And so I think it's, there's never been a more powerful time to be an individual today. Um, you know, we have so much power in our hands, be it through social media, be it through crowdfunding campaigns, be it through um, one person's ability to go viral and, you know, ask the right question. And that's enough to spark an entire conversation. So I think that it's never been easier to actually do something about it. But I think the primary thing is that we're too concerned with being concerned about everything that we forget to find what's really important to us. And that looks different for everyone. Not everyone needs to be tackling every problem. Maybe there's an issue that you feel strongly about, whether it's animal cruelty or whether it's, you know, just being kind to another human being or looking at a homeless person like they're actually in front of you and not like they're invisible. These yeah. are all really small acts that add up to cultural change and to cultural um, affect. And I think that, you know, if you are sitting there thinking, you know, what can I do to feel a little bit more purposeful and more, more fulfilled, you do these like small acts of kindness to someone else. And whether they respond in a way that will validate that or not, it does actually make a small difference. And so I would say find the one thing that you think really is unpalatable to you. Is it, you know, is it the fact that when, you know, they were rebuilding Haiti, they re rebuilt one house and nothing else, then that's something you might want to look into. And whether that manifests as looking at donation transparency or that, means joining Habitat for Humanity, or that means like looking for a charity project in Haiti or whatever it is, it's really, um, it's really understanding how to take this giant thing that you think is intangible and find the one little bit of it that is actionable. And once you do, it becomes really easy to just go because we have it in ourselves to be kind and to be empathetic and to be difference makers. It's just um, sort of being brave enough to start and to figure out what speaks truly to you. Um, and then it'll be natural almost. Like it's almost like your body and your mind just want to go there. And once you figure out what that is, your body will just take you there. You'll, you know, you'll make that donation or you will um, you do that action or you will start a crowdfunding campaign for all I care. Yeah. Like it, whatever it looks like, um, it'll speak true to what's important to you. And the knowledge of I'm not supposed to worry about every issue. I'm not supposed to solve every problem. I'm just wanting to solve this one that I'm really passionate about. Um, figuring that out and then taking little baby steps in that direction, I think is inspiring to everyone. Um, and I got here wanting to solve one problem. I just wanted to look at refugee resettlement. And it was just, you know, what is a tangible thing that I can do for a refugee right now? And that, the answer to that became my company. I'm hearing the, the call to action clearly is <laughs> I, identify uh, an injustice that you see, something that, uh, so to speak, grinds your gears or something that makes you uncomfortable and to prioritize the smallest possible action you could take. You know, Lao Tzu said the journey of a thousand miles starts with one yeah. single step. 
let's let's close this off. I had a I had an amazing time. You're super inspiring to me. I'm sure you've been super inspiring to a lot of people that are listening. Is there anything else that's that's on your heart that you want to share? This is really a it can be a hardball or softball question depending how you look at it. But this the floor is totally yours. If you want to share a quote or a book or a mantra that you use, something to to close this off. Based on, I I'm just conscious that I shape the interview and this is all you. Well, I draw a lot of inspiration from a lot of different things and people that I meet, but I think on my mind today is, uh, as you know, I, uh, we recently lost a, an extended family member, and it's been something that my family's been struggling with for the past week and a half, and my brother wrote a tribute to him yesterday, and in it, he described him so perfectly, and so I think that to drive home the previous answer, I'm going to tell you kind of what he wrote and he was describing him he's my uh my brother's father-in-law we're very close we you know we have lunch on Sundays and he's my niece's grandfather who we love and adore um and so we would have these lunches these like huge family lunches every Sunday and it would be both families together and whatever the meal was it, do it didn't matter but there would always be someone and that was him sitting at the head of the table really quietly like not saying a word, everyone else was like being really loud, laughing super loudly. And he was just sitting there at the head of the table. Stoic. And yeah, well, like smiling. He had this like uh. massive, massive smile on his face. And his greatest pleasure was seeing the whole of his family gathered together, having the time of their lives. And for him, that was like, you know, ultimate peace of mind. It was just Everything to have Everything asked for. But what, you know, what made him special was that you know, we're a really, really big family. So somebody would be late. And before you even realize that there was a chair missing for this person, the chair would already be there. And that was because he was observing and he was just that kind of service, service oriented person. Um, and he was observant and he was the type of human that sort of knew your needs before you knew them and had already responded to them and took great care in making sure that everyone was comfortable that everyone felt welcome. And so I think that uh, if I were to say that there is a, like a small action you can take and a small kindness, it would be to, to be like that, to, be enjoy, to enjoy life's smaller pleasures in the most meaningful moments, and then to have the kind of attention with people that is so servicing, I guess. Sorry, it's still raw, but um, I think I, I, it's been on my mind a lot today. Yeah. yeah, and yesterday. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. Well, condolences to your family. I know you folks are really strong, and uh, you'll yeah. definitely, I think, hopefully come out of this you know, better through his example, remembering and, and cherishing, yeah. cherishing all those memories together. I want to thank it's you for- It's a lesson for, in leadership, right? A lesson in leadership. You don't have to be you know, the loudest. You can just be sitting at the head of the table, making sure everyone's needs are, are met and that everyone's happiness is fueled, and you will have been, without even making a sound, the most impactful person in the room. I appreciate that. And that's a great way to round this off. Again, condolences. I am so proud of you for your strength and the impact that you're making. I'm so proud that I know you and I'm really looking forward to, to being able to spend more time with you. When you're in Toronto, you gotta let us know. We'll, we'll have to go dancing and connect over a beer. So for everyone listening, and, uh, feel free to post my email. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I will. So, uh, Thanks again for this. If anyone wants to reach out to Luch, where can they find you? 
they can find me on LinkedIn for sure and on uh, by email at uh, Lucia at emergedev.co. Lucia at emergedev.co. I really appreciate this. I'm sure the audience has a lot of takeaways. They're going to be implementing some of these ideas. You enjoy the rest of your time with your family in Honduras, and we will have to do this again. I really appreciate the time. Likewise. Have a great day, and thanks again for bringing this conversation to the forefront.